Okay. If you were downstairs last night, you can get ready to go downstairs right now. If you were upstairs last night, you get to stay here. Or if you're above sixth grade. <laughs> you don't have to stop eating. You can keep eating if you would like. You can have some more dessert, get some more to drink. That's just fine. Okay, last night, <clears throat> last night was the spiritual weapon against the flesh. The flesh, what the flesh desires is in the passions, remember that? So the flesh wants things that are going to please the flesh. The flesh wants the things that are going to make the flesh happy, that are going to make the flesh feel good, all of that. So your war, one of the wars between the old Adam and the new Adam is fought in the flesh. What the new Adam says is good and knows is good for the flesh, and what the flesh says it thinks is good for the flesh. I think that these things are going to be good, and I'm going to create a dependency because I want them, okay? So the passions, when we talk about the flesh, because those are our three enemies, remember, the devil, the world, and the flesh. When we talk about flesh, what we really mean is the passions, the passions of the flesh. And I want to emphasize that to you tonight before we go on, because I don't want you to leave, especially after last night, thinking that when we say we war against the flesh, that the flesh is inherently bad, because it isn't. The fact that you have flesh at all means that the flesh is good and that you're supposed to have the flesh. Uh, so I don't want you to think that the flesh is bad and that we as Christians say, well, I just can't wait to get out of this body and finally be myself. That's a heresy called Gnosticism, that you are holy yourself apart from the body and that the flesh is bad and bad for you and you just want to get rid of it so you can finally be 100% spirit. Problem is, you weren't ever created to be 100% spirit. You were created to be flesh and spirit uh, and the union of the two, which is why you're not holy yourself apart from the spirit, just having flesh, and you're also not holy yourself just in the spirit or just in the flesh apart from the spirit. You, you can't have one without the other. You have, to be, you have to have both, flesh and spirit together. So the flesh is not bad. The flesh is part of who you are. Um, the flesh is good. You need the flesh. And someday when Jesus comes again and you rise up out of your grave, you're going to have flesh again. You know, uh, you know, the body that you have right now, it's going to be that same body. This is why we take care of our flesh. 
This is why we treat the bodies at funerals with reverence, because it's, a, it's still a person, and that flesh is going to rise. So uh, don't, don't think I'm saying that the flesh is bad, just in and of itself. Like We hate the flesh. No, what I mean is what we hate and what we war against is the passions of the flesh. Uh, things can be good. There are things that are good for your flesh that also feel good, and that's fine. But turning those things into something that they're not, using them without moderation, in excess, and bringing them to the point where the passions and lusts of the flesh are the things that govern your day-to-day -day life, and whatever spiritual direction you choose to proceed in, that is where it becomes bad. It's the passions of the flesh. And the, one of the words that I used yesterday was concupiscence, which is just the fancy theological name for that desire in my flesh that says, I really want to sin. The, the thing that's bad for me is the thing that I want. Even though I know I shouldn't do X, Y, or Z, I still somehow want to do X, Y, and Z. That's one of the passions of the flesh is this concupiscence, a desire to sin. Your head knows it's wrong, but your flesh still wants it, and then you war. There's a war between what you know is wrong for you and what you feel is good for you. That's the war in the Garden of Eden. Uh, that's, that's the war that begins. The devil appeals not to the reason of man. He appeals to the passions of man. When the, when the devil says, oh no, uh, the Lord, you, you're, you're surely not going to die. This is something good. This is going to make you like God. He's not appealing to their reason. So, they, Well, let's stop and think about this for a minute. You know, I think your arguments are very persuasive, sir. Thank you for, for you know, trying to convince me. That's, he doesn't care about what they know, because what they know is, the Lord said not to eat of this. The Lord said it was bad. So that's the head knowledge. I know that this is bad for me. Where, it comes, where the passions come into play is, it, you notice every time you read that in Genesis 3, there's a switch. And the switch is from, God said we shouldn't eat of it, God said we shouldn't even touch it, we shouldn't even go near it, that's, we really just need to stay away from it. It switches from, God said, God said, God said, to, then they saw with their own eyes that it was good. Then it's the passions. It's not, I know that this is bad for me anymore. It's, I feel that this is good for me. Uh, and that, by the way, is language that's coming into play in the modern world. Everything in the church is cyclical. Uh, and now we are, the church is fighting once again against... Gnosticism, the idea that the flesh doesn't matter and it's only the spirit or the feeling that matters. Can you think of a place where, I don't know, where you might see that? The flesh doesn't matter, it's just what you feel that matters. Okay, sure, feels good to do it. I can sleep around, I can sleep with however many women I want to. It, uh, really, there's no consequence. That's a problem too. That's a, you know, this, there's a sixth commandment issue. Um, which that's not what this class is about, but there's something else. There's an even bigger thing just than like the sexual revolution. There's something else. I was born a man, but I feel like I'm a woman. That's, that's one of the biggest uh, Gnostic examples in the world around you because it doesn't matter. The flesh doesn't matter. The flesh is bad because my flesh is wrong. What my flesh is doesn't matter. 
it's against who I really am. It's holding me back from who I really am. Well, who are, how do you know who you really are? Because I feel it inside. This is what I am. And then it pits the feelings against the flesh. So we know we're, we're not talking about Gnosticism here, but I want you to see that this Gnostic heresy of the flesh is bad and the spirit or the feeling is good is still very much alive and well, which is why I wanted to clarify and make sure you didn't think uh, in case you did, that I was saying the flesh is bad. The passions of the flesh, the lusts of the flesh, those are the things that are bad. If your flesh itself was bad, Jesus wouldn't have taken it on himself, and he wouldn't have promised to raise it on the last day. Questions about anything in, involving fasting, involving war against the flesh from last night? Any questions about war against the devil in prayer? Okay, this is the last night, so if you don't ask him now, you'll just have oh, to... Okay, so last night was crush the head of... Yeah, crush the heads of invisible dragons. And the reason that, is your, that was your aphorism for last night was because in fasting, that's essentially what you're doing. By removing those things and by disciplining the spirit and the flesh, you are crushing the heads of those serpentine passions that come, like the, you know, the fiery serpents in the camp of Israel that come in and they bite the people and the people die. That's what you're fighting against, really. In the power of Christ, you are fighting against fiery serpents that would see you, would see you bitten and die by their, by their uh, venom. And what was the one for prayer against the devil? Yes, that one was, of, of course, I got rid of my notes just... Um, I think it was summon your protect. Give power to your protectors. That's what it is. Give power to your protectors. Prayer summons angels. Prayer is a direct communication with God. The devils fear prayer because God listens to it and he might just do what you pray for. So if you pray that the Lord would drive away demons, well, there's a real good chance the Lord's actually going to do it, which is why the devils hate prayer so much, because it works. It does stuff. So give power to your protectors um, and crush the heads of invisible dragons. Okay? So tonight is your weapon against the world. We're a little bit out of order, at least the way that we commonly say it. We say devil, world, and flesh. But it works better in this order because it kind of goes from the inside out. Not that the devil is just inside you, but you sort of get what I'm saying. Um, so I'm going to give you your aphorism first tonight because we have to, you have to have the aphorism really before we can talk. Your aphorism for tonight is this. Rebel against the spirit of the age. That is your aphorism. Fighting against the world. Rebel against the spirit of the age. And that's where we have to start. And this is the one and only handout that I have for this class, which is a big accomplishment for me, if I might say so myself. <laughs> so we have to ask the question, what is, this? if we're supposed to fight against this, pardon me, okay. If we are supposed to fight against the spirit of the age, who is our enemy? Remember, you can't fight if you don't know your enemy. Okay. 
Very good. Here. Okay. Did you say you don't share with him? Okay. We should get marital advice from you too. <laughs> Yeah, the age, the spirit of the age, the world. The world, it, tonight is going to be, you're just going to have to bear with me because the spirit of the age and the world are going to be interchangeable. Because the spirit of the world is, I'm going to put these back here, so if anyone didn't get one or if we have people come in late, they can pick them up here. The spirit of the age is the lifeblood of the world. Oh, I'll... From up here? Oh, okay. I'll talk louder. The spirit of the age is the lifeblood of the world. Just like your flesh has a spirit, the world, the body of the world, the corporeal created world around you has a spirit too. And what is the spirit? Oh, rats, I didn't give myself a handout. <laughs> oh. Okay, thank you. You're very kind. So, what, uh, what is your weapon? Well, your weapon is almsgiving. Have you ever heard of alms? Yeah, right, alms for the poor. Toppins, toppins. You know, Mary Poppins. Okay. <laughs> I thought that would hit a little harder, but it didn't. So, we'll have to try another bit. Um, yeah, so... Tithing is, Heath, Mr. Bierman, you remember this. Tithing is money that goes where? When you tithe, Brian, do you remember? Anna. Oh. <laughs> You're lucky I already passed you. <laughs> Anybody else? Tithing is the money that goes where? Yeah, to the church. So tithing is, you know, 10 to 10%, at least 10%. We'll talk more about tithing because tithing and alms go together. But it's the money that's, that is set aside that goes to the house of the Lord. So it was all the goods of the, uh, of the people of Israel were put aside. 10% of that went into the, into the tabernacle. It was the Lord's when they would take over and conquer a nation. 10% of that went to the Lord. Um, but then alms is something else. Alms is something above that, and alms is what is given to the poor, to the needy. And alms, alms are not just money. Uh, and I would encourage you to get away from the idea that alms is nothing but money. Now, sometimes people will criticize the church, and to be fair, often their criticisms are valid. Uh, certain churches and certain denominations and certain congregations are guilty of this, and I pray that we never are, uh, but the accusation is that the church cares more about my money than they care about me. And, you know, if somebody ever says that about, about the congregation or the church, uh, I mean, that's a real blow to the heart, or it ought to be. If, even if you give the impression that that's what the church cares about, that the church cares more about money than it does the people, that's bad. I mean, what do you have to do even to give the impression that that's true? So I don't want you to think that it's only money. It can be, but alms can also be goods. 
They can be time. They can be services. Any, basically, any material way that you help somebody in need. That is almsgiving. And alms are a very important weapon against the spirit of the world. So, or the, yeah, the spirit of the age. What is the spirit of the age? Well, I have this schnazzy little cartoon here. Look at the mice. Actually, they're rats, because it's a rat race. Yeah, get it? See, look yeah. at that. Yeah, this, that was a good bit. Uh, so look at the rats, they're running through their maze. And the thing is, it just doesn't end. And every time you get to the corner, it says, oh, happiness is just a little further this way. It's like getting lost in the desert, saying, oh, there's water over this dune. Oh, no, there'll be water over this dune. And you keep yourself going just with that hope that maybe over the next one, there'll be water. Maybe over the next one, I'll get to live. Maybe around the next corner, I'll finally be happy. That's a big deal, though. I mean, it's funny to look at this and laugh. Look at work harder, buy more things, earn more and more, and you keep going. Come on, come on, come on. The cycle just goes and goes and goes and goes and goes. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world out there. Come on, let's go. Get at them. You know, what is your ultimate goal in life? Well, you know, I want to get a good job. I want to get a good car. I want to have a good family. I want to live in a good town. I want to pay into my pension. I want to blah, 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 blah. I want to retire at 65. I want to travel around with my wife. I want to visit my kids. I want to uh, have a good retirement income. I want to have lots of good savings and then uh, you know, die without any debt and giving a whole bunch of inheritance away. Like, okay. So how am I going to get there? Well, I've got to work, got to work, I've got to do this, got to do this, do this, do this. The world is this way. The world is all about this kind of it's, it's corporate, it's materialistic, it's what are you going to get? Oh, I, I want money, I want goods, I want a car, I want a house, I want... Uh, uh, uh. But where in the world is there room for the wisdom of giving your money to somebody else? Or sharing your time with somebody else? Well, I'm pretty busy, I'm, I, don't know. I don't have time to help other people. I got stuff to do, I got to be to work, I got I to gotta go to ball games, I got to do this, this, this. <laughs> This is a, so this is kind of a funny thing. As a, as a classicist, somebody who studied the ancient Greeks and Romans, do you want to know what the sign of success and wealth was when you were an ancient Greek or Roman? It was when you had nothing to do. You knew that you were living large when you had nothing to do. When you could lay on your couch all day and have friends over and come drink at any hours of the day and have your servants come and do everything for you, that's when you knew you made it in the world because your schedule was finally wide open. But now look at us. How do you know you've really made it? When you're busier in your retirement than you are when you were still working. The world is a different place and it really is this lie that happiness is just around the corner and how many people are looking for happiness? This is why the spirit of the age is so dreadful. Because how many people, I know that every single one of you here can probably think of at least five people that you know or have run into that you know are unhappy. And that you know are looking for happiness. The only thing they want is to be happy. And where do they go? But don't go to the church. Obviously, the church isn't going to make you happy. The church is just going to make you feel guilty. The church doesn't have anything to offer. So where are you going to go to be happy? Well, I'm going to go to drugs to be happy. 
Yeah, exactly. I'll go to the bar to be happy. And that also, so you, last night and tonight, kind of they go together. It's like we're straddling the line here because the passions of the flesh, all, you know, very often they, they tie in with what the spirit of the age, with the, what the world is going to tell you is going to be good for you. And I mentioned Brave New World, that book, dystopian novel last night, and the idea of those soma pills. Any, you know, if I'm sad, I take a pill. If I'm happy, I take a, or if I'm happy, I take a pill. If I have a headache, I take a pill. If I have a stomach, I take a pill. It doesn't matter what it is. If I want to sleep, I take a pill. Everything is, how am I going to feel? But the flip side of that part is, where do the pills come from, and why do you think that the pills are the things that are going to make you happy? Because the society around you says, this is how you get happy. It's two sides of a coin. Society says, this is how you're going to be happy. And then the flesh says, yeah, that feels good. I want that. That is what's going to make me happy. And then the, the lusts of the flesh and the passions of the flesh that it holds on to, the reward patterns in your brain that you develop, they are the same as what the world tells you is going to be good for you, which, which is a double-edged sword against you because it means that it's harder to swim upstream, so to say. But everybody's looking for happiness. There are really only, you know, two problems with people. This is something that I knew theoretically before I became a pastor, but after I became a pastor, it was proved, 100%, I can tell you. There really only ever are two problems that people have. And they can have one of, two, one of the two, or they can have both of them. People feel like they are alone, and people feel like they are unloved. They feel like they're alone and they feel like they're unloved. That's really, if you want to boil down people's feelings, those are the two big things. I'm alone or nobody loves me. I don't have any friends. I don't fit in. I'm not loved. I'm alone. And the world says, well, we could make you happy. And look at all the avenues of things that can make you happy. Here's a really good example. When's the last time you were upset and somebody said, hey, let's go shopping. That'll make you feel better. Or when you, you know, you pulled up Amazon and you said, I, I'm just feeling so upset right now. Maybe if I buy some things, it'll make me feel better. I've done it. A therapeutic purchase. And then it arrives and you open it and you look at it and you kind of think, <laughs> and it just doesn't change anything. One of the big things that I do is I buy music. So I, I do that therapeutically. And it's, that's just as bad. You know, I hop on the iTunes and I look at, I don't know, the $1,200 worth of music I have saved just in my wish list. Go, oh, that'll be a nice recording to have someday. Oh, Bach by the Amsterdam Bach Choir. I don't have that one. Well, let's, you know, so you go in and you go, oh, well, I've won. Okay, well, we'll click that. And it's so easy on the computer, too. It's so easy. And, you know, Amazon. So one click buy. All those websites, you go, oh, you want to stay signed in? We'll save all your information. All you have to do, just buy. And then you have it on your phone, too. Boop. And, it's, and there it is. I mean, it's so easy. And it's so addictive. And, and this is what it is. Happiness is right around the corner. Oh, but if you, if, you, if, you, you know, if you run too quickly down here to get that happiness, if you try to get too much of it, you're going to run out of money, so you've got to work harder. You've got to put in more hours. You've got to get more money. 
And then you can spend that money to make yourself happy. And then you go back and you get more money. And then you spend it to make yourself happy. And you, I mean, look at the world around you. You can see people that actually live by this philosophy. This is how they live. Yeah, Bill. My oldest daughter, first husband, suffered with a lot of uh, stress and personal unhappiness. And he bought thousands of dollars worth of stuff. Mm -hmm. And she would try and put a stop to it like that. And his glib comment was, this was retail therapy. Yeah, retail therapy. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> Bless you. Wow. Does someone need some retail therapy? Yeah. <laughs> that, that if he bought something, you know, or several somethings, that whether he could afford it or not, it didn't matter. He wanted it because it would make him feel better. But right. Right, but it never does. But you think that it's going to, so you do it. And then it and then it doesn't. And then you wonder, well, why didn't it make me feel better? Maybe if I bought something else, it would make me feel better. And that's, that's something that's peddled by the world around you, is this idea that, well, that's going to be, you know, treat yourself. Go out there, you know, you don't need it, but you know you want it. Just go ahead and get it. You know, I, I mean, this is something that Carolyn said to me. When we first moved in here, after everybody had come to help us and the truck was unloaded and... Uh, and we had gone out to eat, and we came back, we were exhausted, we kind of sat and we stared at each other, and I said, this house is enormous, and we have so little stuff. We don't have even enough furniture to fill this house. And she said to me, I hope we never have enough stuff to fill this house. <laughs> and I said, you're right. I hope we don't either. You know, you acquire stuff as you, as you live, and if you've ever moved, you know, you, know you, you realize when you're moving how much you've acquired because you don't really think about it until you have all of it, and then you think, do I take it? Do I get rid of it? Jeepers, I'm sure, sure not going to do this in my next house. And then you do it in your next house. Or, you know, like when you have a relative that dies, and then you have to go and you clean out the house, and you're thinking, oh my goodness, I had so much stuff. Holy smokes. You know, but it's this stuff. We get, it, we get hooked into this stuff. So the spirit of the age, this is a really good quote from Thomas Merton. He has a very good book called The Seven Story Mountain. It is true that the materialistic society has produced what seems to be the ultimate limit of this worldliness. And nowhere, except perhaps in the analogous society of pagan Rome, has there ever been such a flowering of cheap and petty and disgusting lusts and vanities as in the world of capitalism, where there is no evil that is not fostered and encouraged for the sake of making money? This is not, by the way, just as a disclaimer, uh, a political statement. This is not Thomas Merton or myself saying, capitalism is bad and socialism is good and whatever, 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 however many other different forms of economy there are. That's not the point. The point is in this, the capitalistic world where you know, I could help the economy by selling my cow and that would help me. And Well, it's become more than that because a society that runs on capitalistic ideals, okay, that's fine. Um, 
there really is, you know, I had an argument with somebody once because they said, well, capitalism's terrible. And I said, why? And he said, because it's propagated by greed. The entire capitalistic economy is based on greed. I said, what kind of an economy isn't based on greed? The whole point of an economy is to help people get money and help a society to function by keep making sure that the society has money. How do you do that without greed? So, well, uh, every kind of an economy, e e economic system is based on greed. And somebody once said, well, the e economy of gift isn't based on greed, like some of the villages in Africa. And I said, oh, yeah? oh, yeah? You want to bet? How much is your gift worth when you give it? Well, you think it's worth some more, but this other guy doesn't think it's worth as much as you do. So even when you're trading goods with somebody, there, you have to place value on it. And anytime you have to place value on it, there's always the temptation for greed. And where there's the temptation for greed, there will always be people who fall into that temptation and who become greedy. That's just the way it is. So this is not me, this is not me or Thomas Merton reflecting on economic systems. The point is to say that in this kind of an economy where you can buy and you can sell and you can, you know, stocks go up and down and all this, we've gone away from a society that has morals and ethics and now it's about what are, what are our profit margins going to be. And I know, you, now you, I don't know if you agree with me saying that or not. Maybe you do, maybe you don't, but I can, but I can prove to you that I'm right. I can prove it to you. How many of you, let's see a show of hands, how many of you believe that nowadays they don't build things like they used to? <laughs> see, and there it is, because what is it now? Because they're trying to make products cheaper and they don't want them to last as long because they want you to have to go out and buy another one. You know, a PC, you go out and you buy your laptop, you know how long that PC is built to last? Two years. It's built to last for two years. They do it on purpose. Built to last for two years so that you have to go out and you have to pay another 1200 bucks to get yourself a new computer. Or you have to go to pay for, to get service on your computer. Now your car, your car might run for over 100,000 miles now, but doggone they don't build those cars like they used to. I remember Bernie Heights talking about his old Dodge pickup truck that he could use to run over a bull to keep it in line. He said, that bull? That Dodge truck, boy, that Dodge would do anything. I bet you couldn't take your Dodge truck and run over a bull with it now. I mean, he? He <laughs> uh, see, they don't, they don't make things like they used to. If you believe that they don't make things like they used to, then you have to buy into the idea that slowly society, the civilized, economic-driven society, has now become something that's concerned more with the making of the money, making things cheaply and getting more money from them and putting more money into your pocket than they care about making a, a piece of equipment or machinery or whatever that is actual quality. It's not so much about taking care of people as it is taking care of money. Everything is about money, everything in the world. What makes the world go round? Money. What's the international language? Well, it sure ain't love, but it is money. Money talks. Love doesn't talk. And this is why the Bible says that the wisdom of the world is foolishness to you and why your wisdom is foolishness to the world. Because the world says, hey, money is the thing that's going to talk. And you say, well, money's going to die too someday, but love will talk. And the world says, ha, you're going to die poor. You're going to get taken advantage of. You say, 
okay, that's all right. They say, you're such a fool, don't you care? I say, well, yeah, I care. But I care more about other people than I do about making sure that I, you know, have my whatever it is, the long list of things. I said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. I'll get my hardwood floors and blah, 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 blah. You know, it's, there are more, more important things in life than things. And that is why when the spirit of the world, when the spirit of the age around you is telling you everything, every one of your problems can be solved with money or with buying something, how are you going to get to be someone in the world? Oh, you've got to ascend that corporate ladder. How do we measure the power of people in the world? It's by their money. Who's the most powerful man in the world? The man with the most money. Tesla, that guy, Elon Musk. He's the most powerful man in the world because he's got all the money. Or uh, um, Mark Zuckerberg, oh, Facebook guy, he's got all the money. Or Jack Dorsey, the Twitter guy, he's got all the money. Or, you know, this is the big one. Um, shoot, the Microsoft guy, what's his name? Bill Gates. Bill Gates, he's got all the money. He controls, you know, these pe the people with the money, they have the power. And who are you? Well, you don't have anything. You're nobody. Well, I wasn't going to get into that. <laughs> Listen, Bill, this is Vacation Bible School, not People Magazine, okay? <laughs> yes, Larry. Yeah, that's... Yeah. The so society has become sort of a transient society. And, you know, people want to hop and hop and hop. And a lot of that is due to, well, if I move here, I get a better job. If I move there, I get a better job. Or if I can be a manager if I go there. And, you know, I've always wondered, what would happen if people started making decisions for their life based upon what church they could go to? Because people make a lot of decisions about moving uh, based on what kind of money they're going to make. And, then, and, you know, and I know people who have done this. They've moved away from a really solid church because they were going to get more money at the other place where they moved, and then the place where they moved had no good churches around, and then they just stopped going to church. Well, because, the, you know, I'm making more money. That's really what's important. But it is a transient... You know, this is... I'll tell you what, this is something I really miss. The days where you'd be born into a church, where you'd be baptized into a church, where you'd be married in that church... Then you die in that church. And then we take you into the cemetery in the backyard and we put, you, we put you to sleep right in there in the bedroom in the backyard of the church. You live your whole life in one place. But you don't see that anymore. And I'm, I know, I'm, I'm someone who perpetuates it, my generation, because like, uh, of the four kids in my family, there's only one who's even still in the same state. Now granted... I'm a pastor, so I went where the church told me I was going to go. And my brother-in-law is a pastor, so he took my sister where the church told him he was going to go. But my brother took a job out of state. And, uh, you know, people are moving. It's, we go where the work is because we're going to go where the money is. And the, the world has become a more transient place. People don't want to stay in one, in one spot.
I lament that, and maybe I'm just kind of an old soul. Someone once told me, hey, you're going to make a really good grandpa someday. And I said, oh, well, that's nice of you to say. Why do you say that? He said, well, because you already are one. I said, oh, that's a lot less nice. <laughs> so, uh, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm just an old soul, but I think that there's something kind of nice about the idea that when I go someplace, I'm going to stay there. Or what are my, you know, what are my values? What are my goals going to be? Am I going to look out for the spiritual well-being of my family or the financial well-being of my bank account? And you know, sure, you might make more money someplace else, and, and maybe you're in such a dire position that you absolutely need to be making that more money, but I think nine times out of 10, you're never really in the position where you absolutely need to make you know, that extra little bit of money. I think it's a, one of those times you say, well, it, we would be more comfortable if we did that. And you say, well, okay, but you know, life's not always about being as comfortable as you want to be. You'll never be as comfortable as you want to be or could be. It's about something else. You can, be, you can have joy and satisfaction no matter where you are. You could live in a cardboard box at the side of the road and still have joy and satisfaction. I mean, some of the most wonderful people in the world. This is a perfect example. You told me a story about a lady who had nothing. What was her name? Yes. Bill told me a story about uh, what's, who sounds to be a wonderful woman, Verona Scheiding. Didn't have, a, didn't have a thing to her name. And she said... Lived in a, practically lived in a shack, had a, had a hip defect that caused her a lot of pain when she walked. Uh, had no, nothing asset-wise. And when she fell, when the ambulance came to pick her up, I was there at her house. And I was standing there holding her by the hand, trying to think of something soothing to say to her, to lift her spirits, and she said, the Lord has been so good to me. And that just about knocked me down. The if Lord has been so good to me. She didn't have anything. Oh no, she had one thing. She had faith. See? That's your weapon against the world. That's, that's where alms come in. I'll, I'll tie it all together in a while. But that's what I want you to see. Who cares, who cares if this is the spirit of the world? Your job is to rebel against that spirit. Who says that you have to conform to live like this? If there ever was a saint in this world, it was Verona Shining, I'll tell you that. Because only a saint, only a saint can stand up like that and make that kind of a confession. And I'm being 100% I'm being honest with you. I'd canonize her if I had that kind of power. I'd do it right now. I never even knew the woman. I just heard this one story and I said, Hallelujah, that's a saint right there. <laughs> Let's see a miracle. Okay? She had no one there because her son had gone to, what, Colorado? Yes. And very seldom came back. So it was the church and the people in the church that were her friends. The church is a body. That kind of stuff matters. Being a part of the body matters. You can say that you've been blessed and you can have joy. And remember, joy is not the same as happiness. You're never gonna be happy all the time, but you always have joy because you have something that's greater than the world. I mean, let's think, let's think for a minute, okay? <clears throat> think about the early church. Think about the early church. What did Christians start doing? It's in the book of Acts. We won't have time to look at it today, which is why I'm bringing it up. In the book of Acts, there are all these passages, all these Christians, they become new converts to the faith, they become baptized, and they join into the community. And then what do they do? 
Okay, sure, they join together they, the, in the breaking of the bread. Yeah, which is, that's the Eucharist, by the way, when it says the breaking of the bread, that's the Eucharist. They have communion together. And then they also sold property and shared it among themselves. Yes, yes. So this is sort of a, a funny thing. You know, sometimes people get angry in the church when you talk about money or like tithing. And typically the people that get angry if you talk about tithing are people who don't tithe. <laughs> because then it makes them feel guilty and when people feel guilty they, they attack you because they don't want to feel guilty. That's another lesson you learn as a pastor. <laughs> well, I have to say, I get sick of steward, is it stewardship Sunday? Oh, well, Seems yeah. Yeah, this is... The Board of Elders talked about stewardship, and we asked the pastor to preach a series of sermons on stewardship. Pastor Lincoln. Well, it sucked. (laughs) Well, I I don't want to... Right? We we asked Pastor Lincoln to... That's what I was talking about. It was Pastor Lincoln. I don't, I'm not, I wasn't here, so I can't really, I'm not going to talk about that issue. I also don't want to put a foot in my mouth or, you know, cause any trouble. But here's what I will say. We don't do Stewardship Sunday for the same reason we don't do any other kind of fill-in-the-blank Sunday, and that is because every Sunday is a Sunday that already has a date and a name. And there was a big... There was a big thing, I don't remember where I read it, a few months, maybe six months ago, that basically said, at least within the Missouri Synod, all of our RSOs, our registered service organizations, have started getting out of control. Because if you really wanted to, you could have every single day of the church year be something for some other organization. This Sunday, this Sunday, this Sunday, Boy Scout Sunday, this Sunday. I mean, you can do whatever you want, fill in the blank Sunday, but then where's the church? Where's the room for the church? So that's why we don't do it, because I don't, I don't look back at the calendar. I, I look at my calendar, and I, say, I don't see Stewardship Sunday listed, and I don't see a liturgical color for Stewardship Sunday. But that doesn't mean the church doesn't talk about money. The church does talk about money, and the church ought to talk about money. Actually, the church should talk about money, but most churches don't talk about money because they're afraid to talk about money, because they're afraid that if they talk about money, people are going to leave because they're going to think that the church cares more about money than about people. That's the issue. But it's like the same, it's like, why don't we talk about sex? I mean, you've been here, this is your third night here. I've been pretty open about the few things I said about sex the last couple nights. I mean, why are we hiding from this? Or like death, why don't we talk about death? Why do we, why do we hide from these things? So money is something we have to talk about because Money is part of spiritual discipline. Money is part of the Christian life. And this is, this is something that I think is funny because every now and then it's these people that get angry when you talk about tithing because what is a tithe? What is the percentage? You know, that's a Sunday school answer. What's the percentage of a tithe? 10%. That's what the word tithe literally means, a tenth. So your tithe is, is your 10%. That goes to the church. And you, some people get really angry. Well, I don't want to put money into the... I don't want to... You know, pay for the pastor to get his BMW. Trust me, I ain't going to get a BMW. Might get a Lamborghini. (laughs) Well, maybe if God answers my prayers, I will. (laughs) 
I'm still waiting for it, though. I don't know. He hasn't really. I told him to send me a sign, but you know the keys haven't fallen down yet, so I don't know. Um, so 10%. And then you know people say, well, don't tell me how much to give. It's between me and God. You say, okay, it's between you and God. You want to know what the Missouri Synod's average? This is for the entire Missouri Synod. The average giving for the entire Missouri Synod is 3.7%. <laughs> Oh no, but we're, and we're having all kinds of financial crises. Listen, you can, you know, the Lutheran Reporter and the budget stuff, you know, I get all of that kind of stuff because I'm the pastor and they think all oh, the pastors should, and, and we should, we should, but it's like, you get all this information and it's like reading through your voters' assembly meeting packet. It's not all that interesting and it's not all that fun, but you know, you have to kind of know what's going on. So the, you know, you're having all of this crisis in the Missouri Senate. Oh, we're not getting enough money. Oh, we need to do fundraisers. Oh, we need, but we're not gonna talk about tithing because that would be the law. Like, okay, all right. But, but here's the thing. The law, the only thing that the law does is it limits you. Yeah, Lisa. Oh, sure, yeah. You're, you're supposed to write down what she promised to give or whatever. It is supposed to be a tent. My dad said, you know what? I'm a farmer. I have no idea how much money I'm going to make this year, so it's none of your business. <laughs> so, but I'm sure he gave plenty to the church. But, you know, he didn't like that idea of writing it down and, you know, what yeah, I'm not a huge fan of that. I don't want this. We're not, on, we're not doing a pledge drive. This isn't a fundraiser. This is a life. Do you go to the grocery store? Do you have to pledge to the grocery store at the beginning of the year how much you're going to spend in groceries? Then why are you? Why would I make you? Why would the pastor make you do that to the church? You're living a life. It's, it's something different. This isn't a pledge or a fund, fundraiser. And so you have these people. They say, "Oh well, that's the law. We can't talk about tithing because that's the law." Okay, yeah, but the law actually just limits. Like when you say that you're set free from the law, it means you're set free to do more. And when it comes to money, let's compare. Um, the Old Testament, okay, you've got to give your 10%. Okay, I've got to give my 10%. That's my 10%. And then what happens? What do they give in Acts in the early church? Everything. They give everything. So this is the funny thing, the next, you know, when people complain about tithing. Nobody has, nobody has done this to me yet, but I have this response ready just because I think it's hilarious. Uh, he said, well, that's between me and God. You don't get to tell me 10%. You don't get to tell me what to give. And I said, no, 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 you're, you're right. That is, your giving is between you and God. Anywhere from 10 to 100% is between you and God. <laughs> and, and whatever you want to give between 10 and 100%, that's entirely between you and God. I see, I, there are some churches too, I knew a church like this, where to, in order for you to join the, the church, you had to submit your, like, your tax information to the church so that the church knew exactly how much you were making, and then the church would look at that and they would compare your tax information with your giving so that they would see if you really were giving 10%, and then if you weren't, they'd come after you. And then you'd have to like sign a covenant or something that said, oh, I'm going I'm to make sure that I do, and, and, or that they would set it up so that they automatically deducted. Like, they would garnish your wages. They would take their 10% out before you got your check. Pardon me? You won't get that out of well, thanks be to God for you, because it's not a very pious way to act. <laughs> All right, so here's the thing. If this enemy that is the world and its spirit is so concerned about material things, 
and especially considering what we talked about last night about fasting and the, you know, the pleasures of the flesh, what then is the good weapon against materialistic things? Not loving materialistic things. That's your weapon. If materialistic things are the enemy, then you say, well, then I just won't love them, and that's okay. It doesn't mean that you can't make a paycheck and have your bank account and do all that. It doesn't mean you can't be rich. If you're a successful businessman and you make a lot of money, or, or you have a lot of land, you have a lot of cattle, you have a lot of assets, whatever, I mean, that's fine. It's not a sin to have money. Contrary to what some people might say, it isn't a sin to be successful and have money. But it is a sin to love your money or your material possessions above anything else and have that be the only thing that drives you in your life is material possessions. It is a bad thing when you feel unhappy and you think that the way to become happy is to go around another corner and to make more money and to get some more things. What kind of a thing is going to make me happy? Now listen, I come from a family that has a pretty significant history with de depression and other mental illness. So I'm not against the idea of people being on medication when they really need to be on medication. If you have a medical reason for it, do it. Some pastors think any form of depression at all is a sin and you should just pray your way out of it. I think that that's not compassionate. I think that that's uh, denying a reality. So if you, if you, you know, um, like my brother is a good example. My brother needs medication. He's got chemical imbalances that, the, that medicine is the only correction for. So then take it and help and you know, take care of your body that way. But it is sort of disconcerting when you look around and you see what the pharmaceutical industry is. When you look at you know, five and six-year-olds that are on three different types of medications a day. Like, what is going on? What's happened that we've become so reliant upon pharmaceuticals above and beyond, you know, a medical thing? It's like a pharmaceutical, something your doctor can prescribe and you can take over the counter is now almost itself a new kind of drug. It's like the Soma tablets. There's a pill for this, there's a pill for this, there's a pill for this. Look, if you have a headache, take an ibuprofen, okay? I mean, I'm not against that, but... So don't get, you know, don't get me wrong. I've got, I've got medicine in my, in my cupboard. Got, you know, Sudafed and ibuprofen and whatever. You've got, you got stuff that you take that helps you, but you can go overboard with it. Remember, any good gift can be misused, and good gifts of pharmaceuticals, which can be very helpful, also can become very bad when that's the thing that you rely on. For everything, when my first response to being unhappy is, well, I better get on medication because I'm sad. I better, I better pay for therapy if I'm sad. I better do this, 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 and this, and this. I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to pay for all these things. I'm going to take all these things. And that's what's going to make me happy. But none of it's going to work. Because none of that addresses the root cause of the unhappiness of the world. And part of the root cause is that very same attachment to the material world that drives you to go seek those things out in the first place. Look, if you need therapy, go to therapy. If you need to take some medicine, then take some medicine. But there's a difference between the need and the want. There's a difference between an actual diagnosable medical reliance and a psychological or emotional reliance or material, physical reliance. And you have to be able to make that distinction. You have to be able to combat the world. 
And the, the, the real big weapon against that is almsgiving, because almsgiving is putting away from yourself, you know, taking away the love of the things. Well, I'm going to treat these things sort of like last night. I'm going to treat them as if I didn't need them. What is it? It's money. I'll treat it as if I didn't need it. I need some of it to live, but I'll give some away too. I'll help you. I'll, we'll do this. We'll do that. That's fine. That's the way you live. You, it's fine to have money, but it's not fine for money to be your God. So, you know, you ask the question, well, how, am I, how should I use my time and my possessions? I want to be a good steward of the things God has given me, so how do I do it? How do I use my time? How do I use my money? I have, you know, uh, like the person who makes more money than they could, or like the person who wins the lottery, let's say that. You win the lottery. All of a sudden, you've got more money and suddenly more family members than you ever thought you... <laughs> Okay. You got more money than you know what to do with. And then so you come to your pastor and you say, well, I don't, I've got all this money. What do I do? Well, do you need it? Well, no. Then use it to help somebody. Oh, okay. I mean, you're going to go bury your talent in the backyard and wait for the master to come or are you going to invest it? You know, when Jesus talks about investing the talents and when the master coming back and saying, well, I turned your two talents into ten talents, Lord. Look what I did. He's not talking about, well, I, I, you know, I took that money and I put it in a real nice interest-earning account here. And, uh, well, Lord, I think you're going to be pretty pleased with the blessings you gave me because fourfold I've grown them. You say, well, that's... Growing fourfold is not that. What kind of growing fourfold are we talking about? Well, here's our verse. From Proverbs 19, he who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord. If you have pity on the poor, what does it mean you do for the poor? You help Yeah, and how? Sure, you, but you give to them. Sure. You give to them of your, uh, of your surplus, of your finances, of your time, of your garden. I don't know, whatever, you, you give. Sure, yeah, the food pantry is a perfect example. Uh, if, you're, if you, by the way, if you ever read the newsletter, I have a, we typically include the things the food pantry needs, and there's something in there that says, this is a really good way to give alms. Because purchasing food and giving it to the food pantry is alms. Because you're, you're, you're donating of your own food or you're donating of your finances to purchase food to help other people, to give to those who are, who are unable to get get it themselves. That's alms. Okay? But he who has pity on the poor, that means the person who helps the poor, who gives to them, lends. What does it mean to lend? Well, lending means like loaning, I think. It's so a loan the, of the expectation that it will come back. Yes, exactly. When you lend money, if I say, I'll lend you 20 bucks so you can go get a sandwich, but then you just, you know, you pay me back whenever you're ready. When you lend the money, there's the expectation that it's going to come back. And when you, you know, when you are caring for the poor, when you're giving your alms, you shouldn't be thinking of how am I going to get this back? What am I going to get out of this? What kind of a tax write-off can I get for this? You know? See, that's, because that's the other thing. There are a lot of people who give charitably, but they don't do it because they want to be charitable. They do it because they want a tax write-off. And that's not really alms. Because if you're doing it because you want a tax write-off, then your God is still your money. Because <laughs> How can I pay less to the government? I'll help the little sisters of the poor. I'll cut them a check. How much, how much do I need to, to give to them, Larry, in order for me not to have to pay the government? No. How are you going to help me save money right now by being charitable? 
And you say, well, that's not really being charitable. That's like the back door. You know, that's, that's the legalist way. This is why the law only hinders. The law limits. Because when the law says, give 10%, then what do you try to do? Okay, how can I wiggle around that? The law is going to limit me. It says that I have to give 10%. Okay, how can I? Did I ever tell you about the time I met a Jew? I mean, I've met more than one. It's not like the one token Jew I've ever met. But I met this Jew, and we had a, con we had a real long conversation. He was a nice guy. He was pretty smart. And we, sort of, we chatted a bunch. And, uh, but one of the things that I remember about that is he was so proud of keeping the law but he was also so proud of the fact that he could keep the law while finding all kinds of loopholes. Like, I'm not supposed to eat candy. This is just, I'm not supposed to eat candy. But this technically isn't classified as candy, so I can eat this, and then it doesn't count as eating candy. Like, I can eat an Oreo cookie, and it doesn't count as candy, so... You know, it's like finding a way around your fast. I'm going to fast from artificial sweeteners. Okay, but then I'm going I'm to keep eating all the natural sweeteners. So, well, then what's your fast? Like... What's the purpose of the law? It, it just limits you. That's why what the gospel does when it sets you free is it sets you free to do more. So the law says 10%, and then the gospel says 10, sure, or 50, or 100, anything you want. And you say, wow, really? I have, now I can, I can do more. I'm not held back by this anymore. So you lend, but you don't realize that you're lending because you don't, now listen, Lord, I'm going to pay for a sandwich for this homeless person but I'd really like to see that $15 back in my account. Maybe, you know, multiply it a couple of, you know, you did it with fishes and loaves. I'm sure you could do it with, uh, you know, a few bucks. Okay? But he who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord. You're not lending to the poor person. You're lending to the Lord. Think about that. And he, this, Marla, is a really good example of where editorial marks do matter and do make a difference because there are two pronouns and two subjects. He who has pity and the Lord. And he, that is the Lord, will pay back what he, the charitable, has given. The poor person that you help is not going to be the one to pay you back and you shouldn't expect it. You shouldn't give to a charitable organization because you're trying to get a tax write-off. Do you get a tax write-off? Well, maybe you do, maybe you don't. And if you do, okay, fine. If you don't, well, it doesn't really matter. I was giving to that organization for a purpose that was trying to give aid. Bill. <clears throat> There's an interesting point about uh, charity um, <clears throat> here. Uh, sometime, uh, just a few years ago, the government was looking uh, from a tax revenue point, they always want more tax money. They want more of discontinuing the tax, uh, uh, the uh, the deduction for charitable giving, <coughs> and the government was flooded with, or not flooded, but many comments about not doing that, and it didn't come from. The people who said, "Oh gosh, I could give a million dollars and say this." It came from the charitable organizations themselves who said, "Hey, don't do that because 
we're getting a lot of money. This is how our charity runs, was on large contributions from Ford Motor Company and AT&T and, and so on like that. They make large, large, multi-million dollar charitable gifts, and they use the tax codes to do it. And those charities are saying, hey, <laughs> you can't stop doing that. <laughs> we got the money. So <laughs> there's another, another angle. Yeah, well, there's always another angle. Yeah. There's always another angle. So here's a passage from the Didache, one of my favorite, favorite, favorite books of all time. If you've never read it, read it. We're going to have three or four copies in the library until my translation is done. And then if you want one, I'll just print it out and give it to you. Um, from chapter one, give to all who ask you and do not demand it back. For the Father wills to give to all from his own gracious gifts. Whose money is it in your bank account? It's the Lord's. Everything that you have is the Lord's and it's been given to you as a gift. The Father wills to give to all from his abundance. He wills to give to you and he wills to give to your neighbor and he wills to give to the poor man down the road. To everybody. He wills to give to everybody. So give to all who ask you and don't expect that it's going to be paid back and don't want it to. When you give to the poor, you are lending to the Lord and the Lord pays back. But the Lord won't pay you back in money. See, that's the thing. This is a, the best investment you could possibly make. The world's going to tell you the best investment you can make is in your things or in your 401ks or your bank account, your high yield interest, whatever. Um, but the Lord's going to tell you, actually, the best investment is to invest love through charity with your neighbors because I will pay that back. You're lending to me there when you do that, and I'll pay it back. When I raise you up, you'll see what you have earned. The, the Lord's high interest yielding account is much better than anything here on earth. Much better than anything. So, um, almsgiving then is, it is a weapon. And it doesn't seem like it because it seems like such a passive thing. Like prayer, sure, that seems like a weapon. Fasting, sure, you be on the offensive. You know what, I'm going to squish this, I'm going to kick it to the curb, I'm just not going to do it, I'm going to fast from that. Okay, that's offensive. But almsgiving, here, let me buy you a sandwich. Here, let me buy you a bus ticket. Ba, 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 ba. I don't know, however you want to. Hey, you want some cucumbers? There's lots of cucumbers out here. <laughs> Thanks for the object lesson. Yeah. By the way, there, there are cucumbers. I don't want to see any of them in the basket because if there are any in the basket, then I have to take them home. And we already have lots of cucumbers that we did get from the Russells. So uh, please take them. And they're wonderful cucumbers. Yeah, they're good cucumbers. And if, you don't, and if you don't want them, take them to your neighbor. But take them. The basket should be empty tonight. That's Christian charity. Take them for yourself or take them for someone else, but take them. Get, we, we don't want them here. Take them to somebody who wants them. Okay? Um, but almsgiving, it is a weapon. It's just not one that seems as offensive as it really is. And I'll tell you, almsgiving, it is potent. It is a very, very offensive weapon. It's just not as in your face about it. But when the world says this, when the world's all about you having money and you say, well, I don't really need the money. I, you know, I'll, I'll treat it as if I didn't need it. And I'll know that the Lord will always give me that for which I need. So if I'm going to you know, do this and this and take care of people, well, that will receive aid from the Lord. Oh, but that's just fine. You know, then the world says, well, that's not right. What are you doing? 
don't you care? Ah! You know, but you're fighting against not only the world, but the world's tendrils that get into you. The world tries to sink its tendrils in you and say, you should, you should acknowledge my ideals. And so many people do. Did you ever read the book, um, A Wrinkle in Time, by Madeline Langle? It's a great book. If you like science fiction, it's a very good book. There are a lot of Christian themes in it. Um, they go to this, the kids, they go to rescue their father, who was a scientist, and he disappeared. And they end up going on this big mystical adventure to another world through different dimensions. And they go to this world, and they're walking down the street, and every door of every house on the block opens at the same time, and every child goes out at the same time, and then every child picks up a ball, and they all bounce balls in the same rhythm, bum, 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 like robots. And it turns out that there is this great evil brain that is like the big bad guys, this giant brain. And the brain has its tendrils that have gone out through the world into everybody. And they've infected everybody. And everybody thinks they're thinking for themselves, but they're not because they're thinking the one thing that the brain tells them to think. And they think that they're all individuals, but they're not because they're all out there doing exactly the same thing together. That's what the world does. The philosophy of the world, the spirit of the age, it's out there, it's trying to get you. Rebelling against the spirit of the age, giving your alms, not doing what the world tells you you ought to do, that is an offensive weapon. You're shooing away those tendrils. You're saying, I don't want you. Get away from me. I don't want to conform to what your ideals are. I think your ideals are silly. I think they're pointless and useless. I think they're selfish. I think they're unloving. They're not what the Lord would have me do, and that's not how the Lord would have me live. Shoo, get away. It's offensive. It's about loving God first and loving your neighbor as yourself. It's the, it's the summary of the law, really. And you can see it in almsgiving. Because you're not lending to the poor, you're lending to the Lord. You're loving the Lord. Why do you take care of your neighbor? Okay, but why do you have compassion on him? Okay, but is that really it? Because God loves them, yeah. So why do you love your wife? Why do you love your husband? Well, sure not because they leave the dirty socks on the floor. And it's sure not because she nags you. And it's sure not because he leaves dirty dishes in the sink. You love your spouse because of Christ. Love has to originate first with Christ. If it doesn't, it isn't love. So your love of the neighbor and your desire to take care of your neighbor really stems from a love of God. So you love God and then you love your neighbor. And you love your neighbor because you love God. And you love God as you love your neighbor and you love your neighbor as you love God. So here's the deal. Um, got this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Probably know Dietrich Bonhoeffer, yeah? He was a Lutheran theologian. He tried to assassinate Hitler. Well, he was part of a plot to assassinate Hitler. Um, he wrote a book called Life Together. Two, there are two books that are very good. One is The Cost of Discipleship. That's a very good book. 
And he wrote another book called Life Together, which is all about how do we live as Christians, but together in a community, not a bunch of individuals. How do we live as a community? How do we love each other? And actually, I've used a lot of his um, chapter on community and, and living together and mercy in, uh, in sermons over the years. But so here's a, a quote from him. God will be constantly crossing our paths with claims and petitions. I thought we were the ones that made the petitions. I thought we were the ones that made the claims. Whoops, I guess we're not as important as we thought we were. Because God makes petitions of us and claims of us. We may pass them by, preoccupied with our more important tasks, as the priest passed by the man who had fallen among thieves, perhaps reading the Bible. Oof. Now think about that for a minute. Passing by your neighbor in need while you have your Bible open. That gets you right in the heart, doesn't it? That just knocks the wind out. That whole Good Samaritan parable just takes on a whole new level. When you think about the fact that the priest is the person who should have known better, and it's really easy to go, oh, no, no, no he should have known better, that priest. It's, oh, well, he knew the scriptures. He knew exactly what he was supposed to do. He still passed by. Your nose is so firmly rooted in the Bible that you can't see the person that needs your love around you. See? Even the Bible can be, as a good gift of God, can be something that misused becomes wicked. Read your Bible. I'm not saying don't read your Bible. Okay? Satan misuses the word of God. It makes it wicked. But you trying to legalize and finagle your way out of doing things and using the Bible to do it and whoa, 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 doesn't work. It's like the Pharisees trying to finagle themselves out of loving the Christ because they have the law. Well, I don't need, the, I don't need Christ to be righteous because I'm already righteous. That's my reading of the law. What's yours? When we do that, we pass by the visible sign of the cross raised athwart our path to show us that not our way, but God's way must be done. It is a strange fact that Christians and even ministers, oh, that's a hard blow. Because who are the ministers? And we're the ones that really ought to know better. Heck, we're the ones that are supposed to be setting the examples for you. And if we're not doing it, Many Christians and even ministers frequently consider their work so important and urgent that they will allow nothing to disturb them. They think they are doing God a service in this, but actually they are disdaining God's crooked yet straight path. That's beautiful, isn't it? God's crooked yet straight path. What's the best way to get from point A to B? Straight line. Wrong. If you ask God, he says, well, it's a little bit of here, and then you're going to dive down, and then we're going to go back, we're going to do a loop. It's like highways in Georgia. What's the best way? <laughs> Jeff Fox really used to have a joke about that. He said, you know, so what was it? Something about you know, all the guys that building highways, you're like, yeah, we're going to take this, do a couple loops, and then just drop it off into a dead end there, and then we'll have a cutoff here, and then, you know, go all the way down there, and if you want to get downtown, you got to go all the way past downtown, then you got to go around, then you got to come back in. That's how we're going to build our highways here. And you just, oh my goodness, where am I going? That's how the Lord designs his highways. Hey, what's the best way to get from point A to point B? All the way around like that. 
And you're the one that says, yeah, but it sure would be faster if we just cut all of that stuff out and we just did the straight line. And the Lord says, yeah, but if you do that, you completely miss the point. Like, I, I have this whole map for you on purpose. I got a whole lot of activities planned for you. <laughs> Why would you cut through it? I don't have time for that. I'm doing your will. <laughs> no, you're not. It's like, okay, here's a really good example. So, you, let's, the, my favorite game, you be me. Okay, pastor. It's Friday night. You've had a really busy week. You still have two full lessons of Lutheran Catechesis New Testament to write before Saturday night. You haven't even started on your sermon. You haven't even started studying for your sermon. And you still have to do a couple things to get the service ready for Sunday. It's 2 o'clock on Saturday. On Friday, excuse me. Ring, ring, the phone. Somebody says, oh, pastor, can you come out and give me communion this afternoon? It's been a couple weeks, and I, I would really like to have it. Okay, you be me. What do you say? Do you say, A, I'd love to, but we're going to have to reschedule it because I don't have time to do that. Or do you say, B, yes, I'll go give you communion, and I'll just worry about all the other work that I have to do another time. You be me. Which one, you know, what do you do? Well, you from CPA <laughs> yeah. Hey, do you guys take credit cards? <laughs> <laughs> See, that's, that's where you just, you go to your files, you just pull out one. Hopefully they don't, they don't remember this one from last year. <laughs> no, but see, it's like, but in that scenario, there are a lot of people who would say, well, you know, the work, you got to get your stuff done and they can, you can always reschedule it. You can go for, you can go do that next week. And you say, no. Because the Lord's roadmap isn't from point A to point B in a straight line. It's all over. It's everywhere but from A to B. You know, eventually it'll make it to B, but doggone, it takes a long way to get there. And that's the point. And what Bonhoeffer says is here, look, when you have people that cross your paths, when there are people that need, and you shoo them away because you're trying to do something else, you're too busy, or like, that's a good example, the one I just gave of, how you're not really doing God's well, I need, I'm the pastor of the church. I need to get that sermon done. I got to preach on Sunday. I got to do this. I got to teach the class. I, may, I don't have time to give communion. <laughs> I mean, you, you think about that. Who's willing? Are you really doing God's will? No, I got to make sure stuff's ready for the service on Sunday. I don't have time to give you communion. Something doesn't add up there. Hey? So um, let's, look at a, let's look at the Bible here. Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, we'll start at verse 17. The rich young man. Ah, yes. Uh huh. Who, by the way, is Mark? Mark himself is the rich young man. Just a little Bible factoid for you. Mark is the rich young man, and he is also the man who runs away naked in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's funny because Mark's gospel is the only one that even records that there was another man in the Garden of Gethsemane who did run away naked, and that's because he's talking about himself. He just doesn't want to put his name in. Okay, Mark chapter 10, verse 17. 
Now, as he, that's Jesus, was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. But he was sad at this word, and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Is it a sin to have great possessions? No. I've already said that. It's not a sin to have wealth. It's not a sin to be successful. It's not a sin to have possessions. What's the problem with the rich young man? He worshipped his possessions. Yeah, see, this is the problem with him is not that he thought he kept the law. There are a lot of Lutheran sermons that are all about that. He thought he kept the law, but you can't keep the law. Like, okay, sure. But Jesus, it says Jesus loved him when he said, I've kept these. Do you think that the man sincerely really thinks that he has kept the law? Yeah. Yes. I mean, you have to think about this. How is the law taught? By the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, what is their understanding of what the law is? They really believe that they're keeping the law. This young man firmly believes he does his best to be very pious. He wants to be saved. He wants to be pious. He struggles because he's heard what Jesus said, and all of a sudden he thinks, maybe all the things that the Pharisees have taught me are wrong. Maybe I'm not saved. Maybe, maybe keeping the law is not the only thing I need to do. And Jesus says, well, you need to keep the law. And he says... I mean, he's exasperated here. That's, this is one of the reasons Jesus loves me. He said, no, but Lord, but I've already done that. There has to be something more because, because you're saying things that are different from the Pharisees. But now you're saying that it's just keep the law? This can't be right. There has to be more. What do I do? And Jesus loves him. He says, you so fervently desire to be saved. Good boy. Good son. You are so pious. And then Jesus says this, one thing, there's only one thing, just one thing that you lack. Sell all you have and give it to the poor. And then he says, take up the cross. This is almsgiving, you take up a cross. Is it a financial hardship to tithe? <laughs> Sometimes it is. I mean, you lower what you have, you lower what you're bringing in to give money to the church. And you lower it even further when then you start sharing things and giving alms. However it is you give it, you're going down because you're either losing time or you're losing resources. So you're going down. You're taking a cross. Just like this rich young man. Take up that cross, young man. The problem isn't that you're rich. The problem is that you love your riches more than you love the poor. The problem is that you love your wealth, and your wealth is the thing that you want to hold on to. And almsgiving is this. You give up the thing that you want to hold on to. How do you kick the bucket? <laughs> 
How do, you, how do you get rid of that? How do you get rid of love for the world? You get rid of the things of the world. You get rid of your attachment to them by giving them away. If you don't have it, you can't be attached to it. If you have a little bit of it, you, can't, you don't have enough to be attached to it. You know, if you have so little money that you have nothing to brag about, then what are you going to brag about? How much the Lord has blessed you! I, point, I pointed at you, but you were, you were very, you were, you were yourself were being a very pious boy. <laughs> you're, you're allowed to read. That's fine. I, okay. It's not until you don't have anything that you realize, you know, where your treasures are. are, your, are your heart is going to be where your treasures are. So if your treasures are all tucked away, uh, in, the, in the bank account, then that's where your heart's going to be. And Jesus says, hey, put my heart with me. Or put, put your heart with me. Don't put it in that stuff. Put it with me. Give your heart to me. Don't give it to your money. Don't give it to your goods. Don't give it to your time. And I'm going to do all this stuff to remind you that none of it's yours if you're willing to listen. But so often we aren't. That's the one thing the man lacked. A lack of attachment to worldly goods. That's what he lacked, a lack of attachment. He didn't rebel against the spirit of the age. This, this is also why Jesus says it's more difficult for people that are rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, not because they have money. Like, you know, sometimes you'll hear a sermon like that and it's really off-putting. I mean, it's just kind of bad. They say, well, if you have money, well then, God damn you. You got to get rid of that money. That money is going to suck you down. Money is the root of all evil. Right? That's what St. Paul wrote to Timothy, isn't it? Money's the root of all evil. Love. Oh, wait, you mean that sometimes people misquote scripture? Well, it's the love of money. Money itself is money money really is what you make it. Society has made it something. You have a choice. Are you going to make your money, are you going to make your time, are you going to make your goods, are you going to make those things what the world makes them? Are you going to define them in the same way that the world defines them? Or are you going to define them in the way that Christ defines them and use them in the way that Christ would have you use them? That's the question. And the world's tendrils say, no, 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 we're right, we're right, we're right. And then you say, Hmm, I don't know. Here, let me give some of it away. And the tendrils shrink back, shrieking. No, why would you do that? That's a weapon. You can fill your life with whatever you want. You can be as full as you want in this life, but you'll find that you're just never really quite full. You try to make yourself as happy as you can, and you're I'm doing everything the world tells me to be happy, but somehow I'm not happy. Because you're missing that one thing. One thing you lack. A lack of attachment to worldly goods. Um, we're going to look at one last thing here. That's Matthew 25. That chapter, you should already know exactly what this is. Matthew 25. Starting in verse 31. I'm going to take a drink here real quickly while you're turning. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, 
and all the holy angels with him. Then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. What is the difference between the sheep and the goats when they are confronted with what they did or did not do? What's the difference between their responses? Sure, but their responses are the same, aren't they? They say the same words. When did we, did, when did we see you and do this? Or when did, we not, when, when did we see you and not do this? But what's the difference? They say the same words, but there's a difference between them. Yes. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Okay. Uh, One group takes care of them, and the other group doesn't. Yes, 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 but I want you to think about their responses. Let me, I'll give you a clue. Think about the attitude of their responses to the king. The king says, you did this, and they say, what? We did? What? What are you talking about? And the king says to the other group, you didn't do this, and say, wait, what? What are you talking about? But what's the difference in their attitudes? And it's okay to paraphrase. I mean, you can paraphrase what they're saying. I just did. Nothing. They both had the same attitude. No, they didn't. Uh, let me ask it this way. Why is it that the goats say, when did we see you and not do this? Because they didn't do it to anybody else. 
And that's big because it means that, well, Lord, I mean, if we had known it was you, well, then we would have done it. And then the question is, yeah, but if you knew it was me and then you would have done it to me, why didn't you do it to the least of these my brothers? And then there's no excuse. That's the difference. That's the difference in the attitude. Well, if we had known it was you, Lord, I mean, for you I would have done it. But, I mean, not for anybody, not for these peasants. Not for anybody else, but for you, sure. I would have visited you. And then the other ones, the sheep, the Lord says, hey, you visited me in prison. They say, and why, do they, why are they confused? I said, I don't remember seeing you, Lord. I mean, I, I visited lots of people, but I don't remember seeing you. When did I see you? They said, Lord, if we had seen you, we would have remembered it. We've been, that's the difference. It's piety and impiety. The impious says, well, we would have done it if we had known it was you. And the pious say, Lord, we've been looking our entire lives for you. And you're telling us we've already, when did we miss you? I, I, I would have remembered it if I had seen you there, Jesus. I mean, I would have remembered you. Jesus says, look, this is me. You are created as those in the image and likeness of God. And how many of the world's people have been redeemed by the blood of Christ? All of them. So when you look at another human being, who do you see? Yes, you see Christ, or that's how you ought to see. So when you look at your neighbor, you, look, you should be able to see your neighbor in two ways, and they're both good. The first is when you look at your neighbor through the lens that, that is Christ, because Christ is on you, Christ is in you, Christ is your all in all. So then when you look at people, you see them the way that Christ sees them. And how does Christ see all of his people? As his beloved children. What wouldn't, what would you not do for your children? You would do anything for your children. You jump in front of a bus for your children. When your children hurt, you would trade bodies with your children so that they don't have to feel that anymore. You would do anything for your children. Would you do anything for your neighbor? That's the way it's supposed to be. You're a smart young man. You look through the lens that is Christ and you see your neighbor the way that Christ sees your neighbor. Which means that when you look at your neighbor, you should be filled with love for them. You should look at them and like Jesus looking out over the crowds, like Jesus looking at lepers, like Jesus looking at sinners, be filled with compassion. Splachnizomai is the Greek. It means his guts churned and poured out. When you say that you, my heart goes out to you, that's a very polite way of saying, my guts are churned and I just barfed my guts out of my mouth because I'm so compassionate for you. But you can't really put that on a Hallmark card. But that's the full sense of it. My guts are just churning. My heart goes out, my guts go out to you. I just have to take care of you. So that's the first way that you see your neighbor. The second way that you see your neighbor is as a redeemed child of God. So you look through the lens of Christ, that's what you see the way that Jesus sees. You see through the eyes of Jesus. And then you see through your eyes, and through your eyes, you see the image and likeness of God. Just like you. It's like looking in the mirror. Hey, you're, you're in the image and likeness of God too? Hey, that's pretty cool. 
So you love your neighbor then too because you see, him, you see Christ in them. Now I'm going to take a drink and then I have a great story to share with you. So from an Eastern Orthodox priest, um, from a sermon for the first Sunday of Advent, I think it was, it tells the story. A woman took into her care a pregnant woman from Africa and her six-year-old boy. One of the interesting things that she kept hearing from people, her friends, her Christian circle of friends, was, how could you do that? I mean, that really takes a special person. You really have made a deep commitment and changed this person's life. And she said, no, they're changing my life. And they said, yes, 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 but you are being Jesus to that woman. And she said, no, she's being Jesus to me. She said, remember where it says that if you find someone who is hungry and you feed them, or someone who is thirsty and you give them something to drink, someone who is naked and you clothe them, Jesus says, if you've done this to the least of them, you've done it to me. She said, I was being told that I was the one being Jesus, and she said, but I wasn't. Those people were being Jesus to me. Think about it that way. Who are you lending to? You're lending to the Lord. When you minister to your neighbor, you're not being Jesus to your neighbor. Your neighbor's being Jesus to you. Think about that. This is why the weapon of alms is such a big offensive weapon, even though it seems like it's kind of a small not as big as the other two, but it is. It gives up your attachment to the world. I don't need stuff. What is the currency of the Lord? Love. That's it. That's the currency of the Lord. How does the Lord buy with love? How does the Lord lend with love? How does the Lord want you to pay with love? How does that love manifest itself? Lots of different ways. Lots of different ways it lends itself. So you take care of your neighbor. Whether that means that you have, you give money or you purchase goods or you offer your own goods or you offer your time, you offer your food. I don't know what, I don't know how it manifests itself for you. The Lord will give you plenty of opportunities to manifest your love in plenty of different ways. But you can't manifest the Lord's love if your love is tied up with other things. How do you invest money? that's already tied up in other investments. You can't. So just like your money tied up in other investments, you can't lend your love if your love is tied up in other things. If your love of money is dragging you down, give it up. Give up your money. If your love of possessions is dragging you down, give them up. If your mansion of a house is dragging you down, sell it, downsize, move to a little apartment. Get rid of the things that, are, that become the problematic attachments. One thing you lack, Jesus said to the rich man, one thing you lack, and that one thing you lack is a lack of attachment to worldly things. Rebel against the spirit of the age. Any questions? Okay, we'll take just a little bit of a break. You can clean up your stuff. You can get a drink of water, use the restroom, and then we'll 
we'll have our service there just a minute. There's a real brouhaha going on in St. Joe of the people standing at the stoplights with signs asking for money. Yeah, that's and that's a whole nother that's a whole nother thing to talk about. Is it right to help people who beg at the streetlights? Yes and no. I mean, do, is there a Christian obligation to pull over and give them money? No, not in that sense. That's one of my um, practices is you deal in goods, not in cash. If somebody says that they're hungry and you say, I'll buy you a sandwich, and they say, oh, thank you very much, then you go buy them a sandwich. If you say, I'll buy you a sandwich if you're hungry, and they say, no, 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 just give me the money for the sandwich. You say, no, I'll buy you the sandwich. If they don't want the sandwich, then, you know, but... But that's a whole other issue, and there are lots of passages even in the Didache that talk about the person who, who, who begs and receives but who doesn't need it uh, has lots to pay back on the last day. So, One day there was a, a young boy in a wheelchair with a panadella, and then another day that boy was standing with the sign and there was no wheelchair. So everybody is yeah. talking in, in what to do. Yeah, well, and that's an issue for a different day. <laughs> yeah, you don't know who really needs it and who is just... No, but also, uh, is it your place to judge who is the person that really needs it? Yeah. That's the other question. So, all right.